Alright guys, welcome to the 10th episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode I interviewed Nora Gagadis. Nora Gagadis is the author of the book Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. Nora is also a certified nutritional therapist and neurofeedback specialist living and working out of Portland, Oregon. In this episode, myself and Nora discussed many of the topics that she covered in her book Primal Body, Primal Mind. And we also discovered many other topics with regards to health and wellness, both physical and mental. It was an extremely informative interview, as all my interviews have been up until now, and I hope you guys really enjoyed. Good, so I can use expletives and stuff. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we're, we're, we're recording right now, so uh, Norga Goddess, as with all my guests, it's an absolute honour to have you on my podcast. I'm really, really happy we finally got together. Just for yeah, any, the operative work. <laughs> yeah, just for any of the listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, just fill us in on your background. Oh, uh, I'm a, I do a clinical neurofeedback uh, work, which is a form of brain training, and I also uh, do nutritional consultation and nutritional therapy uh, in a private practice in Portland, Oregon. And I'm also the author of a book called Primal Body, Primal Mind. The subtitle to that book is Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. What did, what did you mean by this? What did you hope to get, well, get, it, get, to get across the book? To be, yeah, it wasn't meant to be an affront to the, to the paleo movement, but, um, you know, that basically um, my, my own, you know, modified approach to the paleo diet is sort of based on some evolutionary principles, and then I modified it to... Uh, for our uniquely challenging sort of modern-day conditions. And I also uh, refined some aspects of it to inc- incorporate some uh, certain principles of current longevity science, you know, some, certain things that our ancestors would not likely have considered or had access to. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are things that I sort of see as our modern-day advantage. But we certainly live in a world that's quite a bit different from what our ancestors knew. And I wanted to take that, and I think it's necessary to take that into account if you're really looking for a way of optimizing the human diet. Nori, you hear from conventional nutritionists and conventional medicine that glucose is the body's main energy source. It's key that the brain and the nervous system and the heart have glucose. But in your book, you discuss that ketone bodies are actually a more efficient energy fuel. Can you just discuss this? Well, what they say in conventional circles is... Uh, it's a little misleading. It is conditionally true, and it's only true if uh, that, that we re- would rely on glucose as our primary source of fuel if we have metabolically adapted ourselves to independence on glucose as our primary source of fuel. But that's not necessarily what our most natural source of fuel is, and we're much more uh, efficiently designed to make use of ketones. Uh, ketone bodies are, of course, the, what amount to the energy units of fat. Now, you can't run on ketones 100%, uh, but we can certainly run on ketones 80 to 90%. Uh, and glucose is designed to be more of an auxiliary fuel in all situations except for uh, emergencies. So glucose is basically our body's version of rocket fuel. It's an anaerobic fuel. In other words, it burns most efficiently away from the presence of oxygen. And uh, it's, it's what we're designed to make use of in uh, states of either emergency or extreme exertion, which don't necessarily amount to that much of our uh, total energy expenditure unless, unless our lives really suck. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So 
ourselves is a carbohydrate-based diet, then the body is going to, well, for, for starters, the body tends to, to, to get, to try to, you know, maintain the minimum level necessary of blood glucose at any given time for whatever the body uh, might need to do. And that minimum level of, of glucose is basically um, predicated on whatever our demands are at, you know, at the given moment. So anytime we consume sugar over and above what we absolutely need in a moment, uh, the body does what it can to, to get rid of it, to store it, to uh, try to inject it into cells for use for immediate energy. If you don't need the immediate, immediate energy, then it'll store it as glycogen either in the liver or in the muscles. And then whatever doesn't fit there, which, you know, on the average person, maybe we can store about 500 grams. If you're an elite athlete, you could maybe store up to a kilogram of, of glycogen in your muscles, but... But for the average, uh, average people doing uh, living average lives, you know, we don't really store very much of it. Mm-hmm. And so whatever is excess ends up getting converted to triglycerides in the liver and stored as body fat. And, uh, and uh, so uh, it, one of the reasons why bo- the body's very quick, I think, to, to, to lower glucose to more manageable levels is that it... it it tends to auto-oxidize in the bloodstream, meaning it produces free radicals, uh, damaging substances mm-hmm. in the bloodstream that can cause us to age, that can mutate our DNA, that can um, feed bacteria and viruses and, and various other things. And so uh, the body's careful about trying to maintain the minimum amount necessary. The other thing that glucose does is it will combine with proteins and fats in our tissues and cause them to become sticky, misshapen, and start to malfunction. And that's a process called glycation. And the byproducts of that process are called advanced glycosylation end products, Mm -hmm. uh, or AGEs, which not to, um, uh, which which rather appropriately uh, termed also age us. This is how the human body ages in significant measure. So uh, the more we can minimize that, uh, in many respects, the longer, uh, the, the better the quality of our health is, is likely to be, mm-hmm. and the less you're rocking the boat with respect to, uh, to uh, blood sugar. Now, um, if we look at glucose as strictly from the standpoint of the energy that it provides us with, uh, you don't look at any other aspect of it, just that. Again, sugar is basically our version of rocket fuel, mm-hmm. and um, and it it's, it burns very very uh, quickly, and it's something that that is that our brain and that most of our organs, uh, our heart actually really does rely on on, on fats, um, really does rely on ketones and, and that sort of a thing to fuel itself, but most other organs do require. Uh, some glucose in a state of emergency or extreme exertion. So that's where uh, uh, sugar sort of uh, best does its thing. But if we're if we want to use an analogy, and, and being from Minnesota as I am, as we just talked about, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, it's a cold place, and we all uh, use we not all use wood stoves, but a lot of us have wood stoves. And if if we want to use that analogy to describe how we fuel our metabolic fires. You can look upon glucose as being basically a form of kindling, okay? Um, where, where carbohydrates in general to be generally a form of kindling. 
So your whole grains, your so-called complex carbohydrates that amount to being whole grains and um, uh, you know beans and brown rice and all that sort of stuff, you can sort of look upon as being twigs on our metabolic fire. Now, things like bread, pasta, uh, white potatoes, white rice, uh, things of that nature, we can look upon metaphorically as being like uh, crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. Mm-hmm. And of course, things like alcohol and uh, liquid uh, sugary kinds of things, we can really look upon as being more or less gasoline on that metabolic fire. And if you had to heat your house with nothing but uh, kindling, which is how a lot of people are fueling their metabolic fires, you can do it. You know, it's perfectly it's perfectly possible to do it. You can manage that. Uh, you better have a lot of space. Uh, you know, you, you better have a, a big pantry, so to speak, full of uh, full of kindling, because you are going to be preoccupied for the better part of the day with where that next handful of fuel is coming from to keep that metabolic uh, fire going. Mm-hmm. And if you, for some reason, take your eye off the ball and you go and you decide you're going to run an errand or take a bathroom break, heaven forbid, or, or and yes, there's an analogy here, uh, try to sleep through the night, well then... Uh, or correlation rather, then suddenly you come back and you look and oh my god the fire's going out. Now what do I do? Next thing you know you're you're reaching for handfuls of paper and you're trying to cram that in there and squirt lighter fluid on there and whatever else to get that fire going again because when the fire goes out that's an emergency. So uh, and it's 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 a heck of a way to live your life to be that preoccupied. But there are quite a few. Uh, people, let's say multinational corporations, that benefit quite a bit. Um, that have quite a bit of money invested, in fact, in the idea of us all being dependent on carbohydrates as our primary source of fuel because it's very, very profitable and it keeps a lot of people busy. The food industry, big agribusiness, I suppose the petroleum industry that supports that, uh, pharmaceutical industry, medical industry in general, and, you know, I'm sure undertakers are doing a bang up business too. Um, but if, on the other hand, we decide that, uh, you know, we've had enough of that, and, and if we can find and, and put a nice big fat log on that fire, all of a sudden now, you've got life. You can go off and you can run errands and you can take a, and you can sleep all the way through the night. Um, you can do whatever it is that you need to do without being constantly preoccupied and worried about uh, or suffering the effects of, you know, what is happening with that metabolic fire. And, you know, if after a while, say you've slept through the night, you, you appear in that, in that firebox and, oh, look, the fire's burning down. I guess I'll just throw another log up the fire. Mm-hmm. And it's a much, much simpler way to live. So both things can be true. We can depend on, we can, and we have a choice. We can either depend on those, uh, that kindling, or we can depend on fuel that we're most efficiently designed to burn, and that would basically be uh, ketones and free fatty acids. Uh, we are designed to rely on fat as our primary source of fuel, and as ice age and uh, fundamentally primitive beings, um, fat to us means survival. And so fat is the one macronutrient that actually satisfies appetite. It's very even burning. It doesn't stimulate uh, insulin production. Uh, and it just burns very evenly in, in a very sustained manner. So that is, in a nutshell, uh, I 
I guess what I have to say about that. Uh, you say the only thing in the body that actually requires glucose is red blood cells. Can can we still make that in a in a ketogenic state? Can our body still supply enough glucose by itself? Yes, I mean we're designed to produce. We can manufacture. You look at any medical textbook. There there really is no human dietary requirement. Mm-hmm carbohydrates. Yeah. Of all the three macronutrients, the only one for which there is no actual human dietary requirement mm-hmm. are carbohydrates out of proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Yeah, yeah. We can manufacture all the glucose that we need from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a process called gluconeogenesis. Well, first there's glycogenolysis. In other words, we can break down the glycogen in our livers that we store. We have storage of uh, glucose in our bodies that are usually more than enough to sufficiently meet the demands for most things mm-hmm. uh, that we might need them for in an emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the old, one exception for that would be if you're an elite athlete or an Olympic or triathlete or something like that, that you might uh, need to replenish a little bit more frequently. You might actually have to do something to replenish those glycogen stores rather than just sort of allowing your body to kind of... Um, make its own. But for the average person, the stores that we have in our liver and in our muscles are uh, should be more than sufficient to meet whatever demands. And, and if they're not, there is a process called gluconeogenesis in which we're able to manufacture glucose from uh, for proteins and, uh, and fats in the diet. And, um, and the body will do that with, with relative efficiency. If you've been a sugar burner for uh, for a good part of your life, or if you know, uh, for a long time, then your body it actually might be a little too efficient at at manufacturing uh, sugar that it that it decides that it needs various things. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're dependent on sugar as your primary source of fuel, you're also going to be a lot more efficient at converting other things like say your protein stores into also the dietary protein into sugar as well using it the same way mm-hmm. so uh and that can be problematic if you know in the middle of the night you're not eating something and now you go into a hypoglycemic state and you're metabolically adapted to depending on sugar as your primary source of fuel suddenly in the middle of the night that's an emergency all of a sudden your fuel is running out and you don't have what you need to run things your body will starters stimulate adrenaline to try to bring your blood sugar back up, but it will also begin trying to convert your protein stores, in other words, protein from your muscle, from your bones, um, into sugar uh, to use uh, to use accordingly. Mm-hmm. And uh, this can be a vector for things like osteoporosis and, and uh, muscle wasting, um, and uh, that's, you know, obviously not an optimal way to do things. So. I personally prefer to keep blood sugar out of my energy, mood, and cognitive equation uh, by by creating a diet that allows me to def- to depend upon fats as my primary source of fuel. Yeah. And yes, our red blood cells are the one tissue in our body that really must have glucose all the time. But we, we all of our tissues can run, uh, you know, a good, you know, eighty ninety percent. On on nothing but ketones. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and the, that our blood cells work, require the glucose is that they're trying to conserve their precious cargo, which is oxygen, mm-hmm. um, in the process. 
And so they're anaerobic. They feed anaerobically. What um? What do you say to people who say, "But what about all those Asian countries? Like they loads of carbohydrates, and you know they don't seem to have any health effects." Well, when you look at Asian culture, it's very very different from our own. One of the things that characterizes Asian culture, certainly, and by the way, you know when when people start to overgeneralize, yeah, you know around that, I, I, you know I caution people against overgeneralization in that regard because. Obviously, Asian culture involves a lot of different uh, people groups in a lot of different areas, and the diets may, may differ um, significantly. But the fact that Asians eat rice is obviously well established. Um, they also eat a lot of other things, a lot of fish and, and, and that kind of, and, and pork and, and <clears throat> other forms of protein. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that characterizes Asian culture as a whole um, is a bit of a characteristic modesty. In other words, they're known for not do being excessive about the way they eat. Usually, uh, unless we're talking about kind of modern-day Western acculturated Asians and maybe some people in some of the bigger cities that um, <clears throat> you know that that learned to be through advertising and whatever quite a bit more self-indulgent. But that's not that's not culturally typical. What's typical more is a very, very, or very modest portions of things, which of course is going to help keep insulin level insulin levels uh, down. But it's it's not true that Asian cultures don't suffer, uh, you know, chronic or degenerative uh, illnesses, uh, or that they don't suffer heart disease and they don't suffer cancer. They certainly do. Their statistics are a little different than ours, but you know they have they have problems of their own. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the, you know, the fact that we can, uh, you know, or, or, the, or that, you know, some people groups can consume a small amount or, or a certain amount of carbohydrate doesn't necessarily mean that we all should. Yeah. And, and part of the problem is that uh, I don't know if you know anybody, I don't know that I know anybody that is 100% totally healthy, has no metabolic dis- dysregulation or dysfunction at all. Yeah. Uh, you sound like a relatively young guy. Maybe maybe you have peers that, that do seem to be relatively healthy. But um, as time goes on, we have so many things challenging us in our environment and with respect to the quality and, and of our food supply and uh, in, uh, environmental contaminants and, uh, and, uh, and our air and water and, and everything else and um, uh, EMF pollution and uh, um, you know GMO you know genetically modified you know, organisms in our food and chronic 24/7 stress and uh, people are doing fast food and microwave food and there are processed foods and pesticides and heavy metals and you know, they're radiating thin, and there's radiation everywhere now. I mean, there are so many things that are bearing down on us from our environment. To my view, what we need to do is everything that we can um, to minimize the impact of those things, uh, recognize the fact that we have very little, if any, room for error anymore with what we need to do mm-hmm. to maintain optimal health. And to me, removing um, sugar and starch from that, from that equation is just one small thing that I can do to help my body better compensate for the stresses of modern life. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a perspective. 
and I'm not telling everybody what to do, but he, this is the perspective that, that I view things from. Nora, some people say that fat makes you fat, but in your book, right. there, there, there's, a, there's just a, a quote here from page 70, and it's, moderate intake of natural dietary fat is only proportionally problematic or fattening in the presence of dietary carbohydrates. Can you just elaborate on this? Well, and this is, um, you know, I, uh, Dr. Richard Feynman, and I, I have his quote directly in front of me, although I, I think I have it in my book, but um, where, where um, he had stated that, you know, that most of the problems associated with dietary fat have been in the presence of carbohydrate. Dietary fat, in the absence of di dietary carbohydrate, behaves very differently than dietary fat in the presence of carbohydrate. If we're consuming a diet that is very starch sugary and we eat a lot of fat with that, the body will be more likely to store the fat. It will also be more likely to react with the sugar in the bloodstream and start to mutate and, and become um, you know, glycated. And our body will attempt to do everything it can to deal with the sugar first and store the fat for later. Um, dietary fat by itself uh, doesn't create those types of metabolic storms in the body. Um, again, most of the fat that we consume actually goes to structure. It's not all calories that have to be burned uh, or stored away somewhere. When we eat dietary fat, a very high percentage of it uh, gets, um, well, it's initially absorbed into the lymphatic system typically, not, not into the bloodstream. It has uh, roles to play with respect to our immune system, quite a few roles to play with our immune system. We also need fat in order to make use of dietary fat-soluble nutrients like vitamins A, D, T, and K. Um, and we also need dietary fat to maintain the health of our cell membranes, uh, to make hormones, uh, and, and other compounds that are, and, and also to feed our brain and nervous system, which are made up of mostly fat. And so fat has so many different roles to play in our structure of physiology that really only what's left over in that is likely to get stored. But the interesting thing is that we're not, if, if we're eating fat in the absence of carbohydrate, we're not likely to overconsume it because it tends to have a, a, a there tends to it tends to be self-limiting. Yeah. As we know, fat fat-rich foods are very satiating. Mm -hmm. They they rich and they they fill you up quickly and they, they stimulate hormone leptin which is our body's basically fat sensor which controls uh, most of the rest of our hormonal regulation either directly or indirectly and uh, when we've sent the message to the hypothalamus that hunting is good because we've eaten enough fat to convince it then um, you know then we're not hungry anymore so it's actually easier to eat less uh, with a diet that is based in uh, with a high percentage of fat, and that doesn't necessarily make it a high fat diet, but it makes it a high. I'm talking about a high percentage fat diet. Um, you actually end up in the long run eating fewer calories. Uh, carbohydrates don't have that kind of signaling. It's very very easy to overeat carbohydrates because they don't. Um, signal to uh, leptin in the same way and it's very very easy to you know it's very easy to for instance eat a bag of chips in one sitting uh, but it, most people don't binge on butter you know most people don't binge on 
on lard. You know, most people don't binge on fats because they're very rich and they fill you up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nora, in your book you also talk about protein and the importance of keeping protein moderate, particularly with its effect on mTOR. Can you just elaborate right. on this? Yeah, um, now, yeah, this gets to be a little bit of a loaded, uh, not loaded topic, but one that could take a little bit to explain. Un- unload, Nora, but unload. <laughs> well, what I'll try to put in a nutshell is that any amount of protein over that we consume that's over and above what we need for our own maintenance and repair um, has the has the well potential to be converted to sugar and used the same way, mm-hmm. uh, which we're trying to minimize. At, at least in my view, it's something that we ought to try to minimize. Uh, and also, when we're consuming protein over and above what we need for our own maintenance and repair. This also triggers a metabolic pathway that was rather recently discovered that is known as mTOR, which stands for a mammalian target of rapamycin. And without going into the whole story of what that is, what it basically does is it upregulates a sort of a reproductive pathway that stimulates cellular proliferation. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are trying to reproduce, that is obviously beneficial. at least potentially so, if, uh, and if you are looking for uh, some form of, of growth, then that is also potentially beneficial. However, if you're done reproducing and growing, <laughs> uh, you know, physically, uh, and, you know, you're in your 40s and, and whatever have you, by upregulating that metabolic pathway and stimulating cellular proliferation, particularly if as we age, we, our DNA will tends to sort of gradually mutate in places. If, if those cells begin to proliferate, that can be a, a vector or a mechanism, at least, for, uh, for the development of cancers. And in fact, that's how this pathway got discovered, because they discovered that, that the substance rapamycin had a, had a way of, of being able to dampen uh, or, or retard or suppress cancer cell growth, and they wanted to understand why. And what they discovered was what it did was it kind of dampened that mTOR pathway. It dialed it down. It kept it from that pathway from upregulating. Mm-hmm. And, and so it dampened the action of cellular proliferation. And in fact, it's, it's related in many ways to the, the insulin pathway. <clears throat> many people think of insulin as a blood sugar hormone, it's not. Uh, we have several blood sugar hormones, but insulin is not one of them. It has the effect of taking our, helping take our blood sugar down, but, but it does this because part of its job is to take excess nutrients in the diet and, and put them into storage for later use. Mm-hmm. And again, all dietary carbohydrate that we don't need for energy to outrun a charging rhino right now is basically to us excess. And so carbohydrates very readily stimulate insulin release. Uh, but insulin is really about, ultimately, the coordination of energy stores with reproduction and lifespan. And one of the reasons we know it's not a blood sugar hormone is that other organisms, uh, virtually all other organisms, produce insulin right down to single cell organisms like yeast, which we know don't have blood sugar. Uh, and it's the exact same uh, hormonal molecule. Um, 
and it would work the exact same way in the human body. And so it, it doesn't have that role to play in, in nature. Uh, but it will do that as sort of a default for us. So uh, unless you are an elite athlete or unless you are trying to get pregnant, I don't see a value in consuming excessive quantities of protein. Now, the amounts that we absolutely need in order to meet our basic uh, protein requirements day to day really tends to not exceed roughly six to seven ounces of um, meat or fish or eggs uh, in a given day. You know, it's just slightly under a half, half pound. We're able to recycle a lot of the protein in our bodies. Uh, we, we've developed efficient mechanisms for doing this so that we really only have a relatively minimal requirement for the replenishment of di- uh, through dietary sources. Uh, and where I, what I think is most important is using uh, dietary sources that are based on complete protein, in other words, animal source protein. Uh, plant source protein is utilized much less efficiently, and unless all of the essential amino acids are present, appropriate protein synthesis is not likely to occur. They all have to be present in order for protein synthesis to occur. Mm-hmm. Also, um, when we try to get our protein from plant-based sources, you know, like you know, beans and rice or, or you know, things of that nature, um, we also get a lot of starch along with that. That is very, uh, for instance, beans are, most beans are about 60% starch. They're actually starch-based rather than protein-based food. We think of them as higher protein because in the vegetable kingdom, they have more protein than, say, broccoli would. But it's not, uh, uh, it's not easy to meet protein sufficiency with those kinds of foods, and particularly without uh, overstimulating the production of insulin. And one of the reasons that that's a problem is that the higher, the more insulin that you require, according to a lot of uh, modern human longevity research, and this is so well established in the literature now that it's really beyond reproach, that the more insulin that we produce in the course of our lives, the less healthy we are going to be and the less, like, uh, less long we are likely to live, by far. The more we can rely on ketones as our primary source of fuel as opposed to glucose, uh, the longer we are likely to live and the healthier we are likely to be by far. And the work of Cynthia Kenyon has borne this out and it's been demonstrated time and time and time again to have the broadest range of benefit of any dietary approach ever ever studied. And this is based on more than 75 years of research now, so it's, it's ridiculously well established. Mm-hmm. You're after yeah. you're after covering two more of my questions. Yeah, the the research by Kenyon, the the DFA two gene that they discovered. Yeah, the DFA. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She discovered that that encoded an insulin receptor, and it was a gene that was discovered in this ancient little species of worm, and and it it it, it accidentally mutated in this worm, and rather than harming the worm, which mutations usually do, it actually more than doubled its lifespan was the most dramatic extension of life that had been viewed in the laboratory to date. And they spent a couple of years trying to figure out what that DAF2 gene was, what that gene was when they found it. They named it DAF2, then they spent another couple of years trying to figure out what it actually did. 
And once they discovered that it actually encoded an insulin receptor, it just changed the whole field of longevity science forever. Um, because they realized that that was it. That was the reason why caloric restriction in animal models was so dramatically effective, because it basically minimized insulin levels. So anything we can do to minimize uh, the production of insulin in our bodies, and of course, through diet, carbohydrates are the primary way in which this happens. Now, it's not the only thing that produces insulin, and we can become insulin dysregulated uh, through other things. But you know, my, my point of view is there, with all the things we don't have control over, we just basically need to take control of what we can to, to do our best to optimize our health. And if you can't afford to be sick, and I know nobody who can afford it nowadays, I don't know that anybody ever could afford to be sick, but nowadays with the collapse of healthcare and, uh, and, and really the number one cause of a, a bankruptcy, certainly in, in the United States right now, is a healthcare crisis. Mm-hmm. It is a health crisis, it's a health, bad health diagnosis. If you can't afford not to be, uh, if if you can't afford to be sick, then you can can't afford not to be, or not to eat optimally well. And this particular mechanism is one I think makes a great deal of sense to pay attention to, because it's it's a very inexpensive thing to pay attention to. With all the money we could be, you know, we could spend on supplements and different things, to, you know, and and organic foods and all these other things to try to better the quality of our health. Just simply exercising a little caloric restriction and doing what we can to minimize our dependence on sugar and, and minimize our production of insulin can make an overwhelmingly, dramatically beneficial effect on the quality of our health, both mental and physical health. Can you speak about um, the benefits of calorie restriction in this regard, Nora? Well, I, you know, I, I was just talking about that a little bit. Um, Again, caloric restriction is something that was uh, that's been studied for more than seventy-five years now. And originally, when researchers found that by restricting the intake of food uh, in in laboratory animals and in everything you know from you know yeast to, to primates, actually more recently, um, that it had a dramatically beneficial. Uh, effect on the longevity of that animal, but it seemed like a very counterintuitive thing. It seemed like, isn't that kind of stressful to you know, restrict food? You, know, you would think that the more food, the healthier the animal you know, would be. Mm-hmm. Well, that, you know, quite the opposite was true, and they spent 75 years trying to figure out, you know, find that holy grail that would help explain the mechanism behind the effectiveness of caloric restriction. And it was Cynthia Kenyon's work that finally shed light on that and, 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 and sort of enlightened them to the role that insulin plays with respect to reproduction and longevity. But also the, the, that mTOR pathway is another aspect of that whole uh, mechanism, that it's protein and carbohydrates and not dietary fat. Uh, they, they actually Dietary fat does not seem to play a role in triggering these aging pathways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the nifty thing about that is that we can use dietary fat as a way of, of, of using a modified caloric restriction approach that allows us not to be hungry. It's, it's the most dramatically beneficial diet um, that 
and the most affordable way of eating optimally well. I think that it, that is, uh, uh, you know, that that could possibly uh, be. And uh, more recently, uh, in recent years, in in 2010, there was a they took uh, they they finally did a primate study. Um, where you know they had done caloric restriction in all of these other animals, but they they had yet to try to apply this research to to primates, which of course uh, you know where where we tend to fall into that group. So um, I know a few spineless folks that might <laughs> might fit the invertebrate category better, but, <laughs> but you know for the most part we're all primates. So what they did was they took two groups of rhesus monkeys, and this was a 20-year study. So this was really uh, an exceptional study, and I, I waited. I knew about this study for years, and uh, by the time the very first version of my book came out, they still hadn't completed the study. I knew it was going really well, but I, I didn't have any data to go on, and I didn't have their conclusions, and so I couldn't really talk about it. But, but um, right before my, uh, the new edition of my book came out, the study came out, and so it was very, very exciting to me to be able to include that that information in the new version of my book. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they took two groups of rhesus monkeys that were basically selected for their strong similarity to us. And they took one group and allowed them to eat as much as they wanted, basically like most people would. And then they took the other group and they gave them a sufficiently nutrient-dense diet, but they gave them 30% fewer calories than they would normally consider. Well, now, 20 years later, only about 63%, just over half of the monkeys that ate as much as they wanted were still alive. And 37% of them had died uh, due to age-related causes like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, that sort of thing. But in the caloric restriction group, only 87%, almost 90% of them were still alive. And, and, um, and throughout the, their lives, the data show that these calorically restricted uh, monkeys maintain absolutely superior health and also age-related uh, biomarkers in every area, including brain health. And this has since borne out in, in studies of, of, of uh, elderly humans. But, but, uh, but they also had superior metabolic health, a metabolic rate. They had um, excellent insulin sensitivity and also cardiovascular vitality. And they had a three-fold reduction and age-related disease. And in, in addition to that, they also, they lost fat weight, but they were able to maintain very healthy levels of lean tissue mass. Um, they also retained greater brain volume, which normally shrinks with age and, and that glycation process we talked about. But they also retained superior cognitive functioning. So it was a win-win, win-win-win with respect to the health of the calorically restricted monkeys all the way around. And this was published in the journal Science in 2009, uh, in July of 2009, and uh, I have the uh, the reference for that uh, in my book. Um, Dr. You know Ron Rosedale was once quoted as saying that if there is a, a known single marker for long life, is found in the centenarian and animal studies, it is low insulin levels. That's what all the longest individuals have in common. So. Um, so it's it's you know this obviously does not is not all about uh, this is in part going back to the first first question what I mean by going beyond the paleo diet that I, I think that it's important for us 
you know, in the fact that we're sort of shaped and molded, molded over, you know, two and a half million years or so, but by what can only be termed a, termed a climatically variable hunter and gatherer sort of lifestyle. And um, that very well, you know, established in the literature is one that was really free of, of modern day degenerative afflictions and that sort of a thing. That's what our physiological makeup as humans is designed for. And, um, and so that those sort of selective pressures that shape our physiological uh, makeup also helped establish our nutritional requirements. And uh, so what the Paleolithic diet is typically based upon is more or less principles that relate to those kinds of, um, to those kinds of um, uh, selective pressures and, and that sort of a thing, that those principles that are based on those, the idea of how we evolved and what that amounts to basically is a hunter-gatherer type of diet, a diet of meat and fat and um, and uh, and a certain amount of plant material that might have been available to us in various places and times and climates. And really, uh, throughout most of our history, we would not have, our, our primitive ancestors would not have had access to very much sugar or starch at all because most starch-rich um like in, you know, wild potatoes and things of that nature were extremely uh, toxic, and um, and wild legumes are also just prohibitively toxic. And so, uh, other than getting uh, finding the occasional patch of honey once in a while, or eating berries in season, you know, in the fall, during uh, times and places where that would have been available we probably did not have much of a need for insulin in the earlier part of our evolutionary development. And, but, uh, but the way I like to approach this, if I'm looking for a way to optimize the human diet, one thing our ancestors didn't have available to them was, uh, was science, at least not in a way that we know it now. And we can use modern day science to really uh, evaluate things in a different way and allow us to adapt those evolutionary principles in a way to maximize our health and longevity in a way that you know that, that our ancestors might not have thought to do. They selected food uh, not necessarily out of a uh, out of a out of a knowing or a desire to you know optimize their health in some way. They were basically trying to survive. Now they may have known better than we do what it takes to eat to be healthy. But chances are they weren't thinking about their uh, healthy post-reproductive lifespan in the process of making food selections. Um, and so just because they did it, did certain things, just because they ate certain things, isn't necessarily, to me, reason enough to adopt that same dietary approach. Um, I want to know how to best optimize those principles to make them more fully effective in my life now. And I think we, we have to look upon those evolutionary principles as being absolutely foundational to whatever else we do, because that's what our physiology is designed to handle. But, um, uh, you know, it, it, my approach is to kind of go a little bit beyond that and look at some other things that we can apply to that to make it more effective for us today. How would your dietary recommendations change if you were dealing with an elite athlete? Elite athletes 
aren't necessarily leading a life that is that our ancestors would have looked upon as being particularly natural. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I, I think they probably would have stood there and scratched their heads and wondered why somebody would waste so much energy and time doing something that you know they didn't have to do <laughs> in order to survive or in order to uh, you know whatever uh, procure food, clothing, whatever. And um, and I would I would actually think that our average uh, sort of Stone Age or Ice Age or uh, primitive Paleolithic ancestor, however you want to refer to them, might well have given our best elite athletes a run for their money in any single event. Uh, that's really different than the idea of preparing for whatever single event by basically repeating it one day after the next after the next with intense training regimens and, and whatever else that are going to put a tremendous amount of demand on your need for repair and regeneration and also on your uh, on your energy stores. And so when you're doing like a sprinting event, something that requires peak output, well, that's an anaerobic kind of thing unless you're talking about a marathon, that's another discussion, but if you're, to, if you're talking about something that involves um, profound, a short burst of exertion, you're talking about a, a need, a tremendous need for anaerobic fuel. And if you're taxing those stores on a daily basis and training for that type of event, well then, by gosh, you better be replenishing those stores because that's something that is really... Um, uh, going to present, I think, an excessive challenge to somebody who is attempting to rely exclusively on fat for that. Although there is a, another guy um, who is a triathlete himself. His name is Ben Greenfield. I don't know if you've heard of him. You might look him up, um, actually. Mm-hmm. And he actually eats pretty much the diet I advocate, which is a very uh, high percentage fat, very, very low-carb diet. And... Uh, and has great performance in triathlons, but what he does is he cycles his carbohydrate intake. So he eats very low carb uh, for six days out of the week, and then one day of the week he, uh, he'll, he'll eat, you know, sweet potatoes and, um, and bananas and, and berries and things like that. He'll load up on those things in order to replenish his glycogen stores. And that seems to work quite well for him. Uh, I keep meaning to have a conversation with Ben about exactly what he does, but uh, that's my basic understanding of how he approaches that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, again, what I do recommend is that you stick to lower glycemic sources of, or, or well, certainly lower fructose sources. You re- fructose doesn't help you much as a triathlete. Yeah, yeah. What you eat is glucose. You need you're, you're trying to manufacture glycogen. You're not going to do that from fructose. So sticking to the fruits that are a little bit lower in fructose, I think, are, are and, and a little higher in glucose, are going to be better for that. But also um, things like sweet potatoes, um, uh, things of that nature, are going to be a little bit better too in terms of not. See, you can burn off the sugar, but you can't burn off the insulin, and you you don't necessarily need to create massive blood sugar spikes in order to, uh, which are potentially harmful, uh, in order to um, in order to accomplish this. 
And I would rather see people doing sweet potatoes and turnips and other root vegetables as opposed to white potatoes, which are just basically pure glucose um, or white rice uh, as a way of um, as a way of attempting to accomplish that. What about protein? Would you, would you change? What, what would be your recommendation? I, I would. I would change uh, the levels of protein. Where the average person might require, say, 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of ideal body weight, what an elite athlete might do is up that from 0.8 to maybe 1.5 uh, kilograms of, of, of protein, or grams of protein, rather, per kilogram of body weight. To meet to better meet those metabolic requirements, and you're just going to have to, you know, I mean that's the basic formula, uh, and I think that that makes uh, makes good sense uh, to do it that way. Nora, what would you say to someone who goes, who who would say to you, I've been following the exact diet recommendations that you've outlined in your book, and initially, I started off, it felt great, everything was going well. But then after a certain time period, things started to go downhill. I started to get cold hands, cold feet, hyperthyroid symptoms, digestive issues. And then I finally went to go see an naturopath or a nutritionist, and they said, up your carbohydrate intake, and then I started to feel well again. Uh, right. What, what, what would your answer be to this? Well, you know, in my experience working with people, uh, you know, for the last 15 or, or more years, very full-time, and and really advocating a very low carbohydrate diet that whole time, I can honestly say that the negative response to this has been, you know, pretty rare. Um, I've never seen it due to what I would ever term a carb, carb deficiency, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Now there are folks who I think when they first eliminate grains, for instance, as part of that no starch thing, they can have a special sensitivity to gluteomorphins and they can experience a sense of uh, feeling worse for a time, just the way any would. Go, anyone would going through stay an opioid withdrawal, but that's pretty temporary. Um, but if there's some kind of long-term deterioration of benefit on a low-carb diet, then I'm going to begin looking for things like chronic infections or autoimmune mechanisms. Um, I think sometimes, too, going primal, so to speak, is going to have um, sort of a clean windshield effect that might make underlying, other underlying kind of chronic issues more obvious. Mm-hmm as the layers of the symptom uh, onion get peeled away. Um, so, I mean, you may experience a headache and find that an aspirin makes you feel better, but does that mean you had an aspirin deficiency all along? I, I'm not so sure that it does. Uh, I, if, if carbohydrates are, are somehow improving the way a person feels, then I think we need to take a look at what the underlying mechanisms are and see that is treating a symptom but not necessarily being um, uh, an underlying cause of why that person lost, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, benefit. Um, I'm telling you that there are a lot of people right now of all different dietary approaches who are experiencing significant compromise to their health in all kinds of ways. Even people eating optimally well are being challenged in ways that our ancestors couldn't have even begun to have imagined. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a disproportionate number of people showing up with um, with low white blood cell counts. People are, are immune depressed. Um, I had lunch uh, about a month ago in uh, Los Angeles with one of the world's most respected immunologists. His name is Aristo Vojdani, and he was a founder of uh, uh, you know, Science Lab and also 
um, Cyrix Labs, which I talk about in my book. And in the course of our discussion, um, you know, it, what, what came up is the recognition that the majority of people wandering around nowadays are probably producing antibodies against one tissue or another. In other words, yeah. autoimmune processes are literally pandemic. And it doesn't really get diagnosed as auto, an autoimmune disease until enough tissue destruction has occurred that that um, that now you know you need to slap a label on it and call it something. To get diagnosed with an autoimmune disease may be relatively rare, but that doesn't mean that autoimmune processes aren't nearly ubiquitous. And that's really a frightening little advance in the field of immunology is the recognition of the prevalence of of, of these kinds of issues. So. Um, there are many, many, many things that can be going on, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that carbohydrates uh, were necessarily a uh, carbohydrate restriction. In other words, was necessarily a problem. Mm-hmm. We don't have a human dietary requirement for carbohydrates, but there are some uh, different mechanisms that can lead to having a difficulty, for instance, in getting your blood sugar uh, to go up when you need it to. Uh, the the hormone that we tend to uh, one of the hormones that, that will manage where our blood sugars uh, levels are at um, one of the key hormones is, is cortisol for instance yeah. and many many people are walking around with excessively depressed cortisol levels and um, one of the reasons for this has to do with the prevalence of inflammation in our culture, and inflammatory processes, cytokines, uh, in other words, cytokine production, has a dampening effect on our hypothalamus, uh, has a dampening effect on the stimulation of our production, health production of, of cortisol. And um, uh, and so, uh, in addition to neurotransmitters and, and other things, so there are a lot of mechanisms potentially involved in, in blood sugar dysregulation, even on a healthy diet. Uh, many people are walking around with chronic infections. Many, many people are walking around with chronic infections. Uh, viruses, bacteria, uh, parasitic infections, uh, you pretty much name it. Uh, many, many people uh, 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 have, uh, I'm trying to think what all the reasons are a person might uh, uh, accidentally, uh, or not accidentally, but might develop, for instance, uh, you know, carbohydrate, uh, carbohydrate cravings. Um, food sensitivity issues are a major, major source yeah. of carbohydrate cravings. Um, and uh, you know, menopausal issues, uh, seasonal affective disorder, um, serotonin deficiency uh, is is another potential reason a person might experience, uh, you know, sort of carbohydrate cravings and might feel a little better if they if they start to eat more. But the short term gain may lead to diminishing returns mm-hmm. over time mm-hmm. uh, because you know the. Um, uh, because carbohydrates, you know, starch and blood sugar surges tend to have a depleting effect on serotonin long term. Um, 
excess protein consumption is one of those mistakes I think sometimes made by people eating extremely by, by people switching to paleolithic diets that go from a diet really high in, in carbohydrate and they swap that out for really high protein and as we discussed a little earlier when we consume protein in excess of what we need to maintain and repair our tissues a certain percentage of that is going to get converted to sugar and used the same way so very often uh, I think what happens is that people maintain kind of in a way that they that they hadn't anticipated, they're maintaining a dependence on on blood sugar, and they're getting their blood sugar basically by uh, by using excess protein as a way to convert uh, to glucose, and uh, that's a really hard thing to maintain long term, and is something that could you know, potentially be fatiguing long-term. Excess protein consumption can be a little fatiguing long-term for a lot of reasons, just by virtue of the amount of energy that it takes to digest a high-protein diet, the amount of waste products that it produces um, that are a bit burdensome to our eliminative organs. Uh, and so sometimes people are on a paleo diet, but they're really overdoing the protein, and that can be a little fatiguing, honestly. But... I don't run into the problems that are, oh yeah, to try to um, uh, address the whole thyroid thing. There, I, I think that the whole thyroid thing is a very overblown issue. Um, it's gotten just a little bit too much press in the blogosphere. It's not something that I see as a common problem at all. Uh, but but here's a here are a couple of mechanisms uh, behind that. That um, our uh, our metabolic engine basically is being driven by our thyroid when it's at idle and it gets driven by our adrenals when we're engaged mm -hmm. now if you overly uh, are stressing yourself if you give yourself you know chronic uh, you know big loads of chronic stress in other words you've got your pedal to the metal doesn't it make sense that the central computer, you know, of your car, for instance, would, would turn down the idle on your engine as a way of helping you keep from blowing a gasket. That's one mechanism behind um, chronic stress has a dampening effect on pituitary function and can depress your TSH levels and, and also your T4 levels. And uh, that can give you a form of hypothyroidism that's secondary to pituitary hypofunction. Now, if you have gone on a low-carbohydrate uh, diet and you're still being sort of plagued with hypoglycemic symptoms, that's pretty stressful. And you can experience uh, potentially, I think, that dampening effect on pituitary function over time unless you take steps to try to address the hypoglycemia for, for people that sort of plunge into a low carbohydrate diet, which I actually don't think is a bad thing to do. Uh, but for people who are prone to hypoglycemic symptoms, I think it makes sense to take certain compensatory steps so that you can make that transition to ketosis much more comfortably. And I talk about some different supplements that may be really useful, things like L-glutamine, which the brain can use in lieu of glucose. Uh, as a way of sort of using bicycle training wheels until your body adapts to more ketogenic um, 
uh, functioning. Um, and uh, there is an herb called Gymnema sylvestra that you that does a nice job of helping to improve insulin sensitivity in addition to suppressing carbohydrate cravings. Um, using things like coconut oil and or MCT oil can also go a long ways toward helping to support to support your thyroid function and support your energy levels. In addition to helping to kickstart the ketogenic process. Um, as you're making that transition. There's lots of little things that you can do to do that, but there are people that dive into this without taking compensatory steps, and they throw themselves, in, themselves into a state of, of more stress than they need to experience. And in those people, there could be temporary suppression um, of TSH uh, you know, as part of a stress response. And that's something that, um, if it happens, is more likely to be temporary if they're able to successfully make that transition to, uh, to, to ketosis, to really efficient ketosis. Once they make that transition, they'll actually be less prone to adrenal dysfunction because they're going to be, uh, you know, blood sugar is not going to be part of that equation anymore. Yeah. They're going to, you know, you sort of move beyond the need for blood sugar. And uh, your your body and your brain and your organs, and including your thyroid, are going to function a lot more efficiently on a ketogenic diet than one that is constantly trying to manage blood sugar. The other mechanism involved, particularly if you're taking this modified caloric restriction approach that we were talking about, one of the things that often occurs with that, um, I don't always see it, but, but sometimes I see it, is a slight uh, lowering of the T3 hormone. This is actually a beneficial marker in longevity research and not one that's any detriment. And again, you kind of have to look, you might, you know, um, your, your metabolic rate may lower slightly, but what's happening is it's becoming more efficient. It's not being suppressed. And there's a difference. Again, many things may occur within a certain context that low thyroid function in one context may be pathological and in another context may actually be um, beneficial. And it matters, what matters is, is the context that you're, that you're putting it in and, and the degree to which you're experiencing um, uncomfortable symptoms that may be associated with it. But again, I don't see the thyroid issue as being one that long-term is of any significant concern. I, I can count uh, like one hand the number of, you know, uh, of, of people that have written me and said, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling worse, I don't get it. Um, this is kind of unusual. Now, there are, not everybody loses all the weight they want to right away um, eating this way, although most people will. Uh, but weight loss is another issue that I think is rather complex and doesn't necessarily boil down to one or two simple answers. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things that, that can be at play if, uh, as a mechanism if person is stalled out on loss. And that would almost have to be a whole other interview. That It would just take a long time to go into that, although I am, um, I am creating some uh, this is something I'm going to be writing about, let's put it this way, a lot more uh, in the future because uh, I think that uh, there are a lot, of, um, a lot of reasons why a person may experience uh, st stalls or, or resistance.
rather resistant weight loss, and it's a really, really interesting subject. Nora, uh, one of my passions is uh, studying nutrition's effects on emotional health, and I just wonder, uh, if you don't mind, I just want to read one paragraph from your book, and sure. this this was my my favorite page in your whole book, is page 126. Oh. I actually read this to my mother, so I did. Um, it starts off, uh, we see the world around us through the lens of our hormones, neurotransmitters, and to the degree that we are dependent on our blood sugar. Uh, un- unhealthy, un- unhealthy hormonal patterns generate unhealthy arousal patterns and consequently unhealthy emotional and behavioural tendencies. We wake up with bl- low blood sugar due to insulin dysregulation and poor diet and feel lousy. We then proceed to interpret the lousy feelings through associating with events and people in our lives, assuming they are to blame and that life simply sucks, rather than recognising that we are operating under distorted, biochemically induced misconceptions. We become hijacked by our dysregulated nervous system, behave in ways we arbor and even feel we are are somehow fundamentally flawed as a person because of it. This is a huge source of self-esteem problems. We then continue to interpret interpret the world around us through this wrapped lens and beat ourselves up and blame others for our own shortcomings. You then go on and say the function of our hormones, specifically insulin and leptin to a large extent, influence or to a large extent, influence the ways we focus on, on and interpret the world around us and the events in our lives. I thought that paragraph and that, that kind of quotation as well was just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, and that, that sort of summarizes nicely the six-hour workshop that I do on the subject of nutrition. <laughs> uh, it could save people a whole lot of time and trouble, I guess. Because I think that that, you know, in a nutshell is kind of what it boils down to, that you know, a lot of people don't make the connection between their physical health and their mental health. Mm-hmm. I, I, had, I had a client who was one of the most dysregulated clients um, I've ever worked with, and this particular person had severe um, uh, mood problems, had severe problems with um, all forms of, of Instability. They had, you know, they uh, experienced migraines, and they um, and they couldn't sleep at night, and they were extremely reactive, and they all oh, their cognitive functioning was in the toilet, no capacity to focus on anything, just sort of classic distractible ADD type of personality. Uh, they couldn't even complete a sentence sometimes, and uh, I saw them as one of the least healthy people I'd ever met. Uh, and one day, uh, I, you know, and they were a neurofeedback client, and one day I sort of said to them, well, then they had come to me specifically for neurofeedback, and I looked at them and I said, you know, you and I need to have a slightly different discussion here. We need to start discussing dietary issues. And they said, well, well, why, why would we need to do that? I, I'm perfectly healthy. You know, I go to work every day. I haven't been sick in years. Um, you know, I... I've hardly been, you know, sick a day in my life, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I turned around, you know, their progress chart and showed it to them, and I said, you know, have you seen your progress chart lately, you know? And and there was this list as long as your arm of symptoms, but they were all basic mental, uh, neurological, uh, brain-based symptoms, and people sort of forget that their head is attached to their body somehow, and that their emotional states are attached to their body somehow. That, you know, in most people I've met, 
the brain is actually part of the human body. So if they have one for that matter, but, but that's a whole other subject. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so I really am passionate also about this whole subject of, of nutrition and mental health because it's something that gets left out a lot when people write books about diet and, and that kind of thing. And uh, there's no question that it has a profound effect on, on the way we feel and, and function in life. And uh, I think, you know, there, there's nothing about your life that is going to matter at all unless you have a healthy brain um, and the health of your brain is going to be directly correlated to the health of your uh, of whatever you experience as meaning in your life uh, and and the health of your moods and the health of um, um, of your cognitive functioning of your memory of, of, of everything so uh, you know, this is an area that I that's turned into a little more of a niche for me, I suppose. Um, I have done uh, training videos for the state of Washington uh, Institute of Mental Health on the subject of nutrition and mental health for state mental health care workers on all levels, and um, and uh, I uh, you know certainly presented on this subject last year at, at UCLA at the Ancestral Health Symposium. Um, and I recently gave an all-day workshop at the EEG Institute in Los Angeles uh, on this very subject. And so it's an area that seems to have a lot of, have a lot of interest. And um, one, I think, that people are starting to appreciate, uh, uh, you know, the, the correlations a lot more. Uh, Nora, just my final question. Well, one, one of my final questions here. What is neurofeedback? Oh, yeah, well, that, that hardly will take any time at all. <laughs> uh, what neurofeedback basically is, is it's a form of biofeedback that utilizes the electrical activity in the brain as a training tool, as a means of, of giving the brain information about its own functioning so that it can better manage its own states. So, um, uh, so that... It's, um, you know, the, the idea behind it is that we can gain a better functional and regulatory control over the way our brain and nervous system operate by basically learning to exercise our own brainwave activity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's really extraordinary uh, work and one that I tend to see very rapid and very powerful results with, but I don't look upon it as a, as a therapy per se or a treatment. It's really... A, a very highly specific and highly sophisticated form of brain exercise that is designed to address uh, your body's capacity to manage stress in an optimal way, stress on different levels. Mm -hmm. And so I probably get the most calls uh, for seeking those services from people who are struggling with issues surrounding anxiety or depression or you know ADD types of symptoms, uh, migraines and sleep problems, as well as uh, things like autism and Asperger's and Tourette's and and uh, all kinds of strange undefined neurological symptoms. I don't need a diagnosis. I don't work with diagnoses, 
but sometimes diagnoses can lead to clues that tell me how that particular brain and nervous system are put together, where it goes when it's stressed, and what type of brain training might be most optimal for that particular person to help them feel and function better. And as the brain feels and functions better and better manages the stress that's imposed on it, um, generally uh, the fewer the symptoms the person experiences that cause them discomfort in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it can really have a profound effect on a whole variety of things, and it really addresses the brain in a very functional way. Uh, you know, in, 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 um, if, if you have a person, because nobody for neurofeedback ever comes in with just one symptom, right? Most people are walking around with bunches of things they would like to see or feel improved in their bodies or in the way they function. And and so, it, it, but if you were to walk into, say, a doctor's office, a regular doctor, even a natural healthcare provider of some kind, and say, you know, I'm feeling really depressed, or I'm really anxious, and I don't pay attention very well, and by the way, I get migraines, and incidentally, I have trouble sleeping at night, you're going to probably get looked upon is, well, those particular symptoms are going to be looked upon in a fairly compartmentalized way. Mm-hmm. And you're going to walk out of the doctor's office with a prescription for about a half dozen different pharmaceuticals, or you'll walk out of that naturopath's office with a whole shopping bag full of supplements. And as a neurofeedback provider, I'm inclined to look upon each of those descriptives, each of those symptoms, as points in a constellation that the more the points accumulate, the clearer the picture becomes of how that brain and nervous system are put together. And I see every one of those points, um, or, or all of those points rather, as, as a whole, as being very much interrelated to one another. Mm-hmm. So that if we're able to make progress, the, the appropriate progress in helping to optimize the brain function usually you will see across the board improvements in, in these constellations of symptoms and issues. Um, and, uh, in the, and there may be a call for, you know, for instance, different areas of the, of the cerebral cortex are localized for different functions. So part of what we do is we move electrode placements around to target different areas of the cortex to get maybe a little bit more specifically a certain type of stressor that may be causing you a symptom um, and to get at that a little bit more directly. But uh, there are many different training protocols and you don't do the same necessarily training protocol for, uh, for two people with the same kinds of complaints. Every brain and nervous system is different. There's not a cookie cutter approach that says, well, this is what we do for ADD right here you know mm-hmm. um, there's some things in general we know about attention deficits where usually the frontal cortex is involved to some degree but how you train that particular brain is going to depend on who that person is who just walked in and sat down in front of you and uh, so it, it's very very exciting and very gratifying work and it dovetails beautifully I, I see it as actually a really foundational way of bringing the brain to a place of of self-management to where ultimately the person doesn't need to come in anymore. They get go off, hand them the keys to their brain eventually, and 
and say, hey, have a great life and don't forget to write. And hopefully they don't forget to write. And usually the long-term effect uh, is sustained. Uh, unlike conventional exercise that needs to be repeated a couple times a week for the rest of your life to, in order to maintain the benefit, with neurofeedback, there is a conditioning process, but there's also a skill-building process that allow the brain and nervous system to better understand and manage their own states without having to come in and uh, continue to do sessions forever and ever. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that gets me out of the bed in the morning, whether I'm doing nutritional therapy or whether I'm doing neurofeedback training, is the self-empowerment of the people that you know that come in to be helped by me. Um, I feel completely rewarded if a person walks away not ever needing to call me <laughs> again in my life. And it's not that I don't want to see them again. I actually maintain contact with, with a lot of my clients uh, over the years. But it's the act of seeing them or, or, or the, uh, uh, the ability to see them empowered to be able to manage their own states and know what they need to do in order to maintain uh, the most optimal health they can that's so rewarding for me. Mm -hmm. um, that's, to me, what it's all about. And um, it, it's exciting work. Nora, just finally, tell us about any projects you have coming up and any speaking events this year. Well, I'm going to be speaking at uh, the Paleo FX conference down in Austin, Texas this next, uh, this next week. Uh, and uh, that's going to be quite an interesting event. Just about uh, everybody who's anybody is going to be there in the in the paleo community, anyway. So uh, I'm excited about that. I also you'll, you'll get uh, you'll get to meet Sean, will you? Yes, I get to meet Sean finally. Finally, <laughs> I feel like I know the guy because um, I'm also friends with other people that are friends of his. So it's just, I already feel like I know him. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ready to finally just get together and hang out. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people I'm looking forward to hanging out with there, actually. Uh, and I'm going to be um, speaking at a totally different type of conference in Montreal uh, in July, and it's the uh, International Institute for Integrative Human Sciences Conference, which is going to be kind of a little bit fun for me. It's a very much off the beaten track of the genre I normally am associated with. Mm -hmm. And then in, uh, and then in August, I'm going to be uh, speaking at Harvard at the Ancestral Health Symposium uh, 2, number mm -hmm. 2. Uh, and I'm excited, uh, very excited about that. So, And in addition to that, I'm, I'm in the process of creating a membership site. I may be also reinstating um, uh, podcasts, uh, is, at least right now, that's, that's part of my plan. Uh, and I have a few other little... You know, buns in the oven. Uh, I have a workbook that uh, a downloadable workbook that uh, you know, sort of PDF type thing mm -hmm. that I'm creating for my website that will be a little bit of a primal uh, quick start primal health guide, a way of sort of hand holding people to transition to a healthier lifestyle. Um, that my book doesn't quite hold people's hands. It, it, it that, there are an awful lot of people that read my book and and look at it and say, wow, this is so cool, I'm getting on it right now and I know what to do. And I try to give people some guidance as to what steps to take in order to do that within the context of the book. But some people seem to need a little more hand-holding and, and a little more structure and detail. So uh, I'm creating a, a workbook that's designed to do just that, that 
you know, that I'm hoping to add to my website very soon. Um, and I have other other projects as well, but um, there's a lot going on. It's, uh, it's it's a very, very busy time. And finally, what did you eat today? <laughs> Actually, I had a, uh, first thing this morning, I had a hard-boiled duck egg, and... Um, which may not be the most exciting thing in the world. It was quick and easy. <laughs> and uh, I haven't had another thing to eat. And actually, other than uh, I, I have had a cup of, of green tea, um, but I haven't uh, with I had a, and I put a little coconut cream in that to kind of uh, smooth, give it some smoothness and richness. But I haven't really felt the need to eat anything else. But yeah, I guess yeah. it is you know, around lunchtime now, so. I have a uh, a very a small broiled uh, chicken thigh uh, sitting in the fridge uh, of my office, and I'll probably go and, and nosh on that after I talk to you. <laughs> That's and, great. Uh, you know, uh, maybe do a green drink or something like that. Yeah. I, you know, I I the menu that I that I live on tends to not be the most exciting menus a person might live on. Now, I'm just not that sophisticated when it comes to my palate on a day-to-day basis. I love eating incredibly well, and when I have the time to cook, I can really create a nice spread and do interesting things, but my day-to-day life is so busy that if something takes me longer than five minutes to prepare, I just, you know, or ten minutes or something, I'm, I kind of don't have the, the patience for that. Mm-hmm. So my diet tends to be rather simple. I kind of, I'll, I'll nibble on this or that, and... I don't tend to require uh, much snacking at all, mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, that's that's as exciting as it's getting for me today. Anyhow, <laughs> well, I'll let you off and, and, and have your your lunch. So, um, Nora, thanks again. Um, thanks a million for your time. I really, really do appreciate well, it. You're welcome, Robbie. I, I, you know, I owe you one. You you were very very patient uh, <laughs> when it came to scheduling this with me, and you were also very pleasantly persistent about it and I thank you for that um, uh, it, it was also really really nice talking with you thanks a million thanks a million guys uh, so that's it for this episode um, stay tuned for our next episode I'll talk to you soon and stay strong <laughs>